In the 2015 presidential debate to determine the Republican nominee for the 2016 election, Donald Trump went head-to-head with Dr. Ben Carson. During the debate, the two candidates were asked if there is a link between autism and vaccinations. Now, before sharing this example, I want to make it clear that there is no link between autism and vaccinations. Scientists universally agree that vaccinations don't cause autism. There is conclusive data to back this up. And this is exactly what Trump's opponent, Dr. Ben Carson, said. There have been numerous studies and they have not demonstrated uh, that there's any correlation between vaccinations and autism. Uh, This was something that was uh, spread widely 15 or 20 years ago and it has not been adequately, uh, you know, revealed to the public what's actually going on. Vaccines are very important, certain ones, the ones that would prevent death or crippling. Now, this should be the end of the debate. Science provides a concrete, definite answer. The best answer we can come up with. And yet, Donald Trump was able to change the minds of Republican voters, not by sharing better research, better data or better findings, but by sharing a story. But you take this little beautiful baby and you pump I mean, it looks just like it's meant for a horse, not for a child. And we've had so many instances, people that work for me just the other day, two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. Stories are incredibly powerful methods to change people's minds. Dr. Tally Sharrett, a neuroscientist and behavioural scientist, shares that when she heard this debate, there were a few minutes where even she questioned if she should have her child vaccinated. She's a scientist who is well aware of the evidence and 100% agrees with the research behind the benefits of vaccines. Yet, this potent story affected her perception. Not long after this debate, Dr. Ben Carson dropped out of the presidential race. The former neurosurgeon turned politician ended his originally promising Republican presidential bid after a series of disappointing primary debate performances. One of Dr. Carson's problems, which is a problem shared by billions of us, is that we assume facts and data will change opinion. And we assume that stories on their own can't change minds. But, as Trump knew all too well, a story, even a fictitious, made-up story, can have a lasting, significant impact on our views. Today on Nudge, we'll explore why stories are so effective at changing minds, why stories have been fundamental to the development of our species, and how you can craft a better story. In 30 minutes, you'll know how to create a compelling story that can actually change someone's mind. Just promise me that you'll use it for good reasons. All of that coming up after this quick 30-second break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, to help me understand how stories convince us, I've invited Will Storr on the show. He is the world's leading expert on the psychology behind stories. And here he is, introducing himself. My name is Will Storr, and I'm a writer. Will is an award-winning writer. He's the author of six critically acclaimed books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, The Science of Storytelling. This book is a goldmine of information on why stories are so effective at changing our minds. Alongside the book, he teaches an incredibly popular storytelling class all over the world. He also practices what he preaches. He's ghost-written books that have spent months at the top of the Sunday Times bestseller list and have sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. The point is, this guy gets how to write a good story and he knows why stories are so persuasive. So, to kick off, I asked him why stories, like Trump's vaccine story, are so good at changing minds. It's almost impossible to overstate how important stories are to us as humans because story is how we think, story is how we understand who we are, story is how we understand how the world works. You know, so the stories that we perhaps think of automatically when we think of stories, like stories in books and films, you know, that's a creation of the brain. You know, the, the, the brain is the, the human brain is the original storyteller. And, uh, you know, we, we've evolved to enjoy films, enjoy movies, um, enjoy books in that form, because that's the form that the brain has invented through which to understand the world. So that's why it's so essential for anyone that's trying to communicate, especially people in business, that they understand a bit about storytelling, because that is how your customers and clients are understanding the world. One way to describe how potent and effective stories are is just to see how long they've been around for. We know very little about human life on Earth 20,000 years ago. Other than a few bones and ruins, there is not much information about how we humans lived. Almost all artefacts from that era haven't survived, but a story has. See, the earliest story that we know is a tale about a bear being chased by three hunters. The bear is hit, it bleeds over the leaves on the forest floor, leaving behind the colours of autumn. Then it manages to escape by climbing up a mountain and leaping into the sky where it becomes the constellation Ursa Major. Versions of this story known as the Cosmic Hunt have been found in ancient Greece, northern Europe, Siberia and, importantly, in the Americas, where this one particular tale was told by the Uruquis Indians. Because of where the story has spread, researchers believe that it must have been told during the time when there was a land bridge between what is now Alaska and Russia. That land bridge dates back to between 13,000 and 28,000 BC, meaning the story must be of a similar era. Stories are so compelling that they can stick in our minds for generation after generation, for tens of thousands of years. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, because studies show that language itself only evolved to share stories. The sort of dominant theory at the moment about why we develop language is to swap stories. So, so the, the obvious thing you might think of is why we develop language so we can kind of cooperate and coordinate. But obviously wolves can cooperate and coordinate in hunts perfectly well without a, a sophisticated and highly developed language. 
And so the current thinking is that the, the reason that we develop language is to swap stories uh, and specifically to swap gossipy stories, to, 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 you know, to, to, to swap gossip, um, which sounds kind of ridiculous and, and banal, um, but, but actually um, there's a lot of sense to it. So humans are an ape. We're not like an ape. Sometimes we think we're, you know, we're a bit like an ape, but we're not, we're not descended from apes. We are apes. We're a species of ape that has mastered the art of cooperation yeah, and so, so with these highly cooperative um, apes, and so in order to um, uh, and we and we we cooperate in the in the context of groups. So that, that's what we do. That's how humans survive. That's how humans get what they want out of the world. Is that they co- is that they gather into groups, and those groups are the uh, are, are the organisms that do things. So if you think about the human world, whether it's politics or armies or nations or companies or NGOs, it's all groups. That, that that's how we do what we do is, is that we, is that we form into groups and, and that we do things so uh, how do we do that and how did we um um do that in in the long sp- expanse of time in which our brains were evolving before there was a judiciary before there was an army before there were written laws you know how did we make sure that groups cooperated and worked together and um uh, and that people put the group's interests before their own and so you did it with storytelling with you know specifically with gossip so go- gossip is stories are kind of morally inflected tales about other people's behavior and 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 what 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 generally happens with gossip is that is that when when we when people act selflessly when they put the interests of their group before themselves then the gossip about them is good their reputation is good um and they're kind of raised up they rise in status uh, but when the gossip is bad um it's very bad and 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 people get punished and and back in the tribal context that punishment would be sort of teasing um, social exclusion, you know, not being spoken to, and they would rise up and, and get worse and worse. Uh, uh, and at its most extreme form, to be death. It's thought that capital punishment was once a human universal. So that's that, that's how we did it. And for tens of thousands of years, that's how we um, organised and policed uh, the, the function of our groups, which we, 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 we you know with gossip. And we, of course, we still do it today. Um, you can think of the media as just a massive gossip network. You can think of social media. As a, as, a, as a global gossip network through which people's reputations rise and fall. And when they fall, they find themselves ostracized, cancelled, and their reputations killed. That's how kind of fundamental it is to human life. That Without gossip, without storytelling in that form, you wouldn't have human life. You wouldn't have society, you wouldn't have culture, you wouldn't have progress. Stories aren't an added extra on our evolution. They're not a pleasant add-on to our ability to communicate. They're not the cherry on top of the cake. No, stories are the cake mix. It's stories that enabled us to collaborate and organise, whether that's through gossip or more traditional tales. Without stories, collaboration might not have been possible. Recent research has found that language evolved principally to swap social information back when we were living in Stone Age tribes. Stories about people being heroic or villainous and the emotions of joy and outrage were crucial to human survival. We are literally wired to enjoy them. They are an integral part of our evolution. Once you realise this, it's no longer a surprise that stories have such an effect on us today. It shouldn't surprise you to hear that stories dictate who people vote for in elections, or perhaps that stories lead us to dramatic improvements in society. Like, for example, the development of human rights. Yeah, so so there's a really brilliant historian called Professor Lynn Hunt that performed the argument, which I kind of describe in the book. Um, she, she argues that the, that the birth of human rights uh, is partly comes out of the birth of the novel. 
And um, in Western Europe, when the novel begins to become popular as a form, you had these kind of early bestsellers, which told the stories, which started telling stories from interesting perspectives. So, so, so you know, you, you, you would have a story that's told from the perspective of the, the scullery maid, you know, the, the scullery maid being, you know, sexually harassed by their awful male um, boss uh, became a best-selling novel. There were lots of bestsellers written about slave life in America or by former slaves from the United States. And these, this slave literature was a huge part, um, played a huge part in the emancipation of the slaves and the abolishment of slavery, both in the, you know, in, in Britain and, and, and then in, in America. So, so, and so what storytelling does is it, is it kind of helps us see the world through the eyes of somebody else. And, and we've also had captured this happening in the laboratory. So that there was a really interesting study in which um, psychologists in America took um, just a bunch of ordinary Americans. This was in the years following the um, 9-11 attacks and the invasion of Iraq and kind of tested their beliefs about Muslims and, you know, t- t- tested them to see how kind of prejudiced they were against Muslims and some of their kind of, you know, less healthy beliefs about, you know, what Muslims were like. And then they split these groups of people, in this group of people into two. And then the control group watched um, lots of episodes of the sitcom Friends, which is, as you know, it's just very, it's just about ordinary white Americans hanging out in New York. Uh, but another group um, watched uh, an American sitcom called Little Mosque on the Prairie, now, Little Mosque on the Prairie is a bit like the Cosby Show. It's, it just sort of depicts American Muslims as ordinary Americans having ordinary lives. And by the end of their the kind of season of watching Little Mosque on the Prairie, they retested these people's prejudicial ideas about Muslims. And compared to the control group of watch friends, their beliefs had changed in the direction of being much more reasonable and fair and seeing people with Muslim um, background as just being ordinary Americans. And crucially, they retested them three months after the test and their beliefs were still had still adjusted. So this exposure to story, this exposure to um, the experience of life through the eyes of other people, people who belong to other groups, not only was it real, but it also lasted way beyond, you know, their experience of the actual story. So, 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 so there's good reason to believe that these kind of theories put forward by the historians who talk about the birth of human rights and the emancipation of the slaves uh, are really onto something. Our brains really haven't evolved much in the past 30,000 years. They've adapted very well to our surroundings, but it's still the same old ape brain under the skull. There's a great bit of research that highlights this. It's a study cited in Will's book that found that people prefer to sleep as far away from the bedroom door as possible with a clear view of the door. So when people in sleep laboratories get the choice of where they want to sleep, they pick that option in general. Why? Well, the researchers concluded it's because of our prehistoric tendencies. Our brains still act as if we're sleeping in a cave, and as such, we should position ourselves to be wary of nighttime predators. But it's not just visible in sleep. The body's reflexes remain primed for the savannah we once roamed. When someone creeps up on us and shocks us, the body automatically responds as if it's being attacked by a prey animal. All over the world, people enjoy open spaces and lawns and prefer trees of a height and canopy similar to those that we evolved amongst. Our prehistoric preferences are still with us, and that's why our love for stories remain. As Will says, this can be incredibly beneficial. A good story about a good cause can lead to the development of human rights or the emancipation of slaves. But 
Not all stories are good. Take Trump's misinformation about the vaccine, a story designed to spread fear, uncertainty and doubt upon which he could thrive on. He's not alone in using stories for this purpose either. In 1915, the film Birth of a Nation presented African Americans as unintelligent brutes who sexually bullied white women. The three-hour-long story played to sold-out crowds and recruited thousands to join the Ku Klux Klan. In 1940, the film Jew Zeus portrayed Jews as corrupt and showed a high-status Jewish banker, Zeus Oppenheimer, raping a blonde German woman before being hanged in front of grateful crowds in an iron cage. This wasn't a niche movie. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival where it won plaudits. It was seen by 20 million and caused viewers to pour en masse into the streets of Berlin chanting, throw the last Jews out of Germany. These stories have a lasting impact on people. As Will said, those who watched the mosque on a prairie saw a change in views that persisted for over a month. Here's the thing. Those who need to convince large groups of people are better off using a story to put their point across rather than sharing data. The problem is, in today's world, those with data, they rely on it, and those without lean on stories. Perhaps it's not a surprise that the rise of popularist polarised views came exactly when these views could be shared widely via social networks. Trump, Brexit, Bolsonaro, even Putin are examples of leaders or campaigns that control the masses through story, not fact. But the question I want to answer is how? How do you come up with a story that is so compelling, so gripping, that it can capture a nation and change the views of the masses? Well. I ask Will after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. We've just covered how important stories are, not just at convincing people, but in our evolution into a collaborating society. But now I want to know what makes a great story. So I asked Will. I mean, for me, a a really great story um, is about character and character change. I I think the kind of, you know, when you talk about mass market machine made stories, I I think the mistake uh, that that scholars of story have made for actually thousands of years is is that they've decided that plots, they've argued that plots was more important than character. And that actually, if you want want people to uh, be gripped by your story, you've got to think about plot. And that gives birth to, you know, all kinds of, kind of story making devices almost like algorithms the most famous is probably the um the hero's journey joseph campbell's hero's journey which is 
informed generation after generation of Hollywood screenwriter. But, but, but of course, it's not that simple for every Star Wars that follows the hero's journey. You've got, you know, a thousand failed, <laughs> failed stories, stories that just seem dead. They do all the right things and everything happens in the right order, but they're just dead. And, but if you think about the the stories that that people really love, the stories that 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 just endure for generation after generation, indeed, whether it's Star Wars or uh, a Christmas Carol or sitcoms like Faulty Towers or Fleabag or The Office, they revolve around really compelling, really interesting characters. You know that th- that first Star Wars movie and and the, the the initial trilogy, yes, it did all the plot things right. But Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, C three PO, R two D two, they are unforgettable characters. Much better than I would argue than the characters in the more recent kind of franchises. So and and I, so I think people have um, become kind of bewitched by the apparent magic of plot. This this idea that if you put certain things in a certain order, you're gonna you're gonna become rich and successful and 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 pack them in at the at the cinema and get to the get into the Santa Times bestseller charts. And actually if you look look back at the history of storytelling, it kind of bears this out. When you understand that all story comes out of tribal gossip, for me, that's what really under, uh, underlines this idea. Because what's what's gossip all about? Gossip is all about who is this person? That that's what we're trying to figure out when we're gossiping about people, whether whether it's people that we know or whether it's distant figures in culture like Elon Musk or AOC or um, you know Greta Thunberg or Andrew Tate or whoever it might be, when we're talking about these people, we're trying to figure out who are they? Are they good people or are they bad people? We have this fascination with other people, with the interior lives of other people, with the motivations of other people. That's what gossip is. That's what we're talking about when we're enjoying gossip. That's how reality television, that's how Love Island gets millions and millions and millions of viewers every every year. Uh, me, me being one of them, <laughs> you know, because, because it's just this gossip machine that, you know, good reality TV, Big Brother Love Island is this gossip machine where you, where you meet all these people and you spend a whole, se- a whole you know, summer figuring out, arguing, who, are they good people or are they bad people? Great stories talk about people. Trump didn't use stats or data to talk about the vaccine. He shared a story about a mother in his team. A story that's based around a strong character is wired to get us interested because humans have spent millennia gossiping about people. We can't help but be enthralled in their stories. The psychologist Professor Brian Boyd writes, Humans naturally pursue status with ferocity. We are relentless, if unconsciously, to try and raise our own status by impressing peers and naturally, if unconsciously, evaluate others in terms of their standing. We are desperate to know what others think about us, and we are also quick to judge others. And we need to. Researchers have found that people's subjective well-being, self-esteem, and mental and physical health appears to depend on the level of status they are accorded by others. Will says that a good story is about learning if the characters are good or bad people. That makes an effective story because it's what we spend our life doing. We're always analysing other people to figure out if they are good or bad. So how do we get an audience, whether that's voters or customers, to care about our character? Whether our character is Harry Potter, a political candidate, an idea or even a brand. How do you get people to care? Well, one of the very best ways to get someone to pay attention to your character is to leave something about them unknown. Here's why. 
it, it's become one of my bugbears when you open a book, especially a novel, or, or well, even not, not even a special novel, like a non-fiction book too. And it begins with the date of birth and the parents, and you got to uh, meet the grandparents, and it's just like, oh no, this is somebody that doesn't understand, you know, what a story is. I think a story is a simple sequence of events. Uh, actually, I I think you know a, a story begins when a character becomes tested. It's that moment in which they're tested. That's that's when a story begins, and it, it isn't going to begin on on the day of their birth. It's going to begin on on the day when the sequence of events that led to their greatest ever challenge begins. That's that that's that's when the so somebody's if if somebody has a story that that that's when that's when it's going to begin. It was actually, you know, one one of the first writers to that, that kind of figured out that you don't actually have to tell everything about a character. And in fact, it was uh, better if it's, it can be better if you leave out a bunch of stuff uh, with Shakespeare, like Shakespeare's later, um, more complex plays. I mean, as most people know, Shakespeare's plays were kind of all remixes of previously existing plays. and the, But the previously existing plays would do that thing of you know, the correct thing of giving you a flawed character, but the slightly tedious thing of giving you all the backstory, all the reasons why the, the character had become flawed. So there'd be no space left for mystery. And what Shakespeare started to do, uh, like King Lear and Macbeth, was leave out all that stuff that the previous writers, you know, remit versions of that story and, and just presented you with this character who was deeply flawed. And this has this kind of magical effect of... um kind of give, giving space for the reader or the viewer of the play, giving space for them to try and figure out for themselves, who is this person and why are they behaving like that? We'll get on to the importance of making your character flawed in a bit. But first, I want to emphasise the significance of leaving something unknown. Leaving something unknown is a surefire way to capture attention. In fact, as Will says, Shakespeare's popularity arguably came from using this trick. The Professor of Humanities Stephen Greenblatt writes that Shakespeare's true leap in genius took place when he made the crucial breakthrough of removing character information. That's right, Shakespeare's breakthrough was not adding character information, it was removing it. See, Shakespeare's plays were based on existing stories, Greek, Roman, ancient stories. Yet in these stories, the writers always explained the causes of their characters' behaviour in full. These pre-Shakespeare stories explained who the character was, who they loved, and what they wanted before the real story had even begun. But when working on Hamlet... Shakespeare decided to artfully exclude these character explanations. See, in previous versions of the play, Hamlet's madness had been clearly revealed at the start as a tactical and fake ruse to buy time and foster the appearance of harmlessness. It was plain and clear for the audience what Hamlet was doing. But in Shakespeare's version, the source of his suicidal madness is much less clear. It's not plainly described to the viewer why he is mad, and that keeps people engaged. That's what made the story so memorable. Shakespeare intuitively knew what many psychologists are discovering today, that curiosity spikes interest. Research shows that nine-week-old babies are drawn to unfamiliar images over ones they've seen before. Between the ages of two to five, it's thought children ask around 40,000 explanatory questions to their caregivers. What this means is, other than parents being overloaded by questions, it means that we are wired to be interested in the unknown. 
Professor George Lowenstein devised a great test to prove this. In the experiment, participants were confronted by a grid of squares on a computer screen. They were asked to click on five of the squares. Some participants in control group A found that with each click, a full picture of an animal appeared. Click one box and you see a dog. Click another and you see a monkey. But the second group, this is group B, saw something different. When they clicked a box, they only saw small individual parts of an individual animal. Click one box and you see an ear. Click another and you see a paw. You're not quite sure what the animal is and your curiosity is spiked. Here's what happened. Those in the second group were far more likely to keep clicking on squares after the required five. And they kept going until enough of the boxes had been uncovered to reveal the animal's identity. Whereas those in the other group, they've stopped clicking after the required five. If you've listened to Nudge before, you'll have heard me rant on about the importance of this. It's known as the curiosity gap. And this is why the curiosity gap is so important, because leaving something unknown is just proven to grasp our attention. It's why cliffhangers work, it's why clickbait is everywhere, and it's why Shakespeare is still popular today. So don't reveal everything clearly in your story. Leave something unknown. It'll get people interested, regardless of whether it's a 30-second ad or a three-hour play. But that's not all. Your story, where possible, should start with a change. Here's why. Yeah, so, so when a storyteller is beginning a story, they've got a real challenge on their hands because they've got all this great, compelling stuff to, you know, beguile a reader. But 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 when they when, when the reader just turns on the, you know, clicks on the YouTube thing or opens the first page... How are you going to hook them in from the from the from the very kind of first moments of your story? And so, what lots of storytellers do. There's really two. There's really two strategies. The first one is is to express a moment of change or or the threat of change because change automatically grabs attention. Um, the brain is a prediction machine, and the brain likes to predict what's happened, what's going to happen next, and what's going to happen next, and what's going to happen next. And ninety nine percent of the time, it, it can predict pretty well what's going to happen next. But if you suggest to the brain that there's something that it doesn't know, that there's a surprise, it's going to become spontaneously interested. So, so, so that's one way, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, often sort of packed into um, um, the very first sentences of, um, uh, you know, a writer's novel, for example, when you open a, open a good novel, very often the very first sentence will be either a description of, um, a, a moment of change or, or, or kind of the threat of change, I call it. So, you know, when you, when you open the novel Jaws, the, the, the first sentence describes this kind of fin moving in the water. So it's this very powerful threat that change is going to come. Uh, and you see this in children's books, um, like um, Where Spot by Eric Hill. It begins just with that spot. He's, you know, where can he be? And so the, the sense is that Spot's gone missing. So it's an immediate moment of change. And then all the way up the scale to a book, say, like Intimacy by Hanif Qureshi, the first sentence of Intimacy is, it is the saddest night for I am leaving and not coming back. So again, it's this, it's this moment of change. And so, you know, all, all the way up the scale from this sort of the broadest children's book to the, to the, to the kind of um, most kind of high work of literature, these writers are doing the same thing, which is immediately grabbing attention with this moment of change, with a description of change. The Hunger Games starts with the line, When I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. Charlotte's Web starts with, Where's Papa going with the axe? And Albert Camus starts The Outsider with, Mother died today. 
or yesterday. I don't know. Don't start your story or your presentation or your ad with a description of who you are. That's not interesting. Start it with a change. Humans are obsessed with change, so much so that it fills our dreams. Researchers find that the majority of dreams feature at least one event of threatening and unexpected change, with most of us experiencing five such dreams every night. And wherever studies have been done across the globe, from city to city, dream plots reflect this. The most common dream is about being chased or attacked, according to story psychologist Professor Jonathan Gottschall. Other universal themes include falling, drowning, being lost, trapped, or in other words, most dreams include change. So, start your story with a change, because we are wired to be more interested in them. And to double down on these attention-grabbing tactics, you should link your change with uncertainty. I titled this podcast, The Surprisingly Simple Way to Change Someone's Mind. If I had called it, Stories Influence the Views of People, it wouldn't be nearly as attention-grabbing, as there'll be no change expected and no uncertainty. This title is designed to be attention-grabbing. And I'm not just copying Shakespeare, by the way, I'm copying Charles Dickens as well. Uh, the, the the other way is to kind of inspire um, curiosity. Humans are obviously also ineffably curious creatures. And so um, suggesting to the brain that there's something strange happening is another good strategy. So my favourite first sentence is Charles Dickens' um, Christmas Carol, which in the first sentence is Marley was dead to begin with, which I think is brilliant because Marley was dead. It's kind of someone's died, someone would change. But then to begin with, it's like, what? <laughs> to begin with, you know, so, so it's really fantastic. And, you know, and um, and unusually concise for Dickens. He was a very, you know, he, he wasn't not known for his concision. But yeah, you know, Marley was dead to begin with, a really fantastic Um, first sentence. The very best stories capture attention when they are based around an interesting character and when something about that character is unknown and when something in the character's life is changing. But there's one more aspect of storytelling that's vitally important and it's something that used to surprise me. For a story to be really gripping it has to be about a character who is fundamentally flawed. Here's why. Like good storytelling is this kind of profound exploration into human life. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, there's this really great quote by this radio producer who was, um, that, that, I, that I, I, I tried to find a place for in the book and never did. Um, and he said, all storytelling is, is an answer to the question, how should I live my life? Which I think is really beautiful. This is a guy that um, um, was a mentor to um, the um, This American Life podcast people he was their kind of first producer and i thought that's such a powerful um um thing and I, and, I, and i think it's really true and 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 so good storytelling is about you know we talked about character but it's but it's also but it's really about flawed character it's it's about something happens to this person who doesn't understand how the world works in a, in, in a specific way and then what the plot does is is, is it kind of tests and teases apart their mis- the mistake they're making about the world and really satisfying story um we see that character adjusting and reassessing and beginning to form a more complete and more successful theory about how the world works so you kind of have to start with a flawed character you know because flawed characters are interesting they're relatable and if you but more fundamentally if the character isn't flawed then where are they going to go like, there's, there's nothing more boring than a perfect person there's nothing more boring than a 
good person <laughs> you know we, we, we you know we, we, that, that's not who we want to meet at the beginning of a story we want to we want to meet somebody who's making a fundamental mistake about the world um and and who is motivated to somehow kind of figure out what mistake they're making and fix it because that's all of us really isn't it i mean that that's the ultimate relatable thing is that we all feel um you know we're all flawed and, and we all make the same mistakes over and over again and it's action in the world it's the tests that the, that the plots of our lives throw at us which hopefully um you know over the course of a life s- slowly make us better people flawed characters are vital to a good story now i wasn't surprised to hear this in the past on nudge i've spoken about how showing flaws makes someone more likable this is known in psychology as the pratfall effect Studies show that intelligent people who accidentally spill coffee down themselves are just seen as more likeable, and job candidates who reveal their weaknesses during a job interview are more likely to get a job. It's even the case that products sell more when they're not perfect. There's one 2012 study that showcased this. It's a study that showed participants uh, information about hiking boots on a website. To half the group, the researchers listed all the great things about the boots, that they were orthopedic soles, they, were, they had waterproof material, they had a five-year warranty, etc, etc. To the other half, they included that same list of positives, but followed it with a few negatives, stating that these boots unfortunately only came in two colours, and so on, with small negatives like this. Remarkably, the majority of buyers who had gotten that small dose of negative information were more likely to purchase the boots than those who had received exclusively positive information. It sounds counterintuitive. To write a good story, shouldn't our lead character be flawless? To sell a great product, shouldn't we hide its weaknesses? Well, no. Flaws make your character and your products more appealing and more likeable. For years I've struggled to understand why so many people were convinced by arguments that seemed to completely lack rationality, research, science, data and evidence. I've scratched my head wondering why on earth people voted for Trump, why on earth people supported bills that were against things that I valued. I couldn't understand why parents would put their child at risk of deadly diseases by not vaccinating them. But after working on this episode, all of this became a lot clearer. Humans might live in a high-tech world with endless access to data, science, studies and insights, but our brains are still identical to the cavemen who sat around the fire and told stories. And like those cavemen, we too are heavily influenced by stories. We are wired to remember them, interpret them and learn from them far more than we would from data. So don't discredit the power of a story. And where possible, try to use stories yourself. Try to make your stories as convincing as possible. To do so, focus your story on a character over the plot. Start your story with a significant change. Leave something unknown about your character to spark curiosity. And above all, make sure your characters aren't perfect. Follow those steps and you'll end up with a compelling story that'll be far more persuasive than any data point you could share. Okay, folks, that is all for this episode. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Will Storr for coming on the show today. I think he's one of the best guests I've had on Nudge, not only because he deeply understands how the human brain works, but also because he practices what he preaches. 
He doesn't just tell people about the science of storytelling. He uses it himself, authoring many successful books and ghostwriting a number of bestsellers. He's great. And if you want to learn more from him, I really do recommend picking up a copy of his book, The Science of Storytelling. I think it is a must read for anyone who needs to convince and persuade others. So marketers listening, this is a book for you. I've left a link to it in the show notes. Will will actually be back on Nudge in a couple of weeks time which I'm very excited for and that episode I genuinely think is even better than this one. On that episode he explains the confirmation bias to me, he explains why most of us feel that everybody else is wrong and we're right. It's a fascinating listen and I'd tell you more about it but I want to leave a little bit unknown. So to make sure you don't miss that show please go and follow my newsletter. Head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. If you subscribe you'll get access access to that episode first before anyone else plus you'll get another behavioral science tip in your inbox every week now for those listening on a podcast player i wanted to let you know that i also publish these episodes on youtube so if you want to watch the episode on youtube alongside lots of video image and music that relates to what i'm talking about then just search for nudge podcast on youtube that's nudge podcast on youtube and you'll find me on there That is all for this week. As always, please do click follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. That makes a huge difference and really helps me out. But thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and I will be back next week for another episode of Nudge.